Hello there. This is Drew. Welcome back to the Academy Revival podcast. I'm here, as always, with Doorman, the person responsible for orchestrating the programming at Academy Theater, along with the other um, co-workers and co-programmers. Welcome back. Hey, Drew. Uh, happy January, or almost January, because we're recording this at the end of December. But uh, we're going to be talking about January 2024's revival program, and uh, we got five weeks, so this is going to be a big episode here, so we'll try not to get too carried away talking about some of our favorite movies, I'm sure, but we got a lot of movies to go through, so we'll keep it quick, uh, and we have five weeks. Each week this this month is going to be a themed double feature. And, you know, it's nice that we have this podcast. We get a little time to talk about, you know, the background. How did we come up with these ideas, yada, yada. So basically, you know, we played this movie that we're going to talk about, Fantastic Planet, several times before. And it was a couple years ago when we were playing it. Um, I just got the idea, you know, I love the movie Forbidden Planet. And I was like, oh, it'd be kind of interesting and good contrast to do a planet double feature with Forbidden Planet and Fantastic Planet. And I always had that in my mind for a January sci-fi um, theme. And uh, I talked about it with my manager. She liked it. I came up with some other ideas. She came up with some ideas. And we kind of just grew out of that. Excellent. Yeah. Um, these earlier movies that I think we're going to start with are going to be <laughs> blind spots for me, but as we move through the month, there's going to be some all-time favorites of mine as well. So a good balance from what I know so far about the about the programming. And we got a pretty good mix here of really, really serious, really, really goofy, uh, really, really old, really, really new. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, let's just get right into it. Um, so for our first week, we got two mind benders for our mind benders double feature. Uh, this is December 29th through January 4th, uh, starting off with, uh, Christopher Nolan's film from 2014. It's Interstellar. I'm coming back. Every hour on that planet will be seven years back on Earth. Oh, you're not prepared for this. mission does not work if the people on earth are dead by the time we pull it off you might have to decide between seeing your children again and the future of the human race all right Enrique. hang on we'll find a way we always have here's the description in earth's future a global crop blight and second dust bowl are slowly rendering the planet uninhabitable. Professor Brand, played by Michael Caine, Michael Caine, <laughs> a brilliant NASA physicist, is working on plans to save mankind by transporting Earth's population to a new home via a wormhole. But first, Brand must send former NASA pilot Cooper, played by Matthew McConaughey, and a team of researchers through the wormhole and across the galaxy to find out which of three planets could be mankind's new home. 
So this is a nice follow-up to The Dark Knight playing in September. Was that in September? That um, Yeah, that was part of our September sequel. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I was looking, I've been looking for uh, an excuse to revisit this for a while with Oppenheimer coming out over the summer, you know, one of the biggest <laughs> movie events of the year. So Nolan right. has been um, a big figure at the Academy for the last half of the year or so. And this one is one of the more, I mean, all of his movies are kind of philosophical and, and mind-bending, as, as you put it. This one, I remember, like, really taking me down the wormhole, so to speak, of, like, yeah. scientific concepts I had never thought about before. Um, he is really good at making um, thoughtful, uh, provocatively, you know, intellectual movies, whether or not it always, like fully conforms with science or not, but combined with like blockbuster mm. visuals and, and, and action. So you get like your medicine with your um, dessert. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I remember I was working at the Academy when this movie came out and it was very clear that it was a new echelon for technology, for cinema, for the space opera, you know? Yep. We, we can talk about the history of grand space epics, you know, with Star Wars, Dune, so many, you know, throughout the decades of cinema. Um, but this one, it, when it came out, you know, I'm, I was very skeptical. Uh, you know, I, I liked Dark Knight, didn't, wasn't super keen on Inception, and then I saw the cast, Matthew McConaughey, wasn't super excited about, you know, it just... Uh, but then when I saw the crowd's reaction and I saw my friends go and see it, everybody was like, no, John, this this is different than a lot of these other modern movies that you've seen and maybe got a little jaded on. And so take it from me, coming from somebody who's a little jaded on modern cinema, that Interstellar is really a, a, a fucking awesome movie. Yeah. You know? And I think... I tell you that my process for researching through these previews episodes is to watch about 25 minutes of each movie. And when I was watching Interstellar, unlike all the other movies that I uh, that I had re was researching for this episode, this is the one that I kept wanting to watch. I kept wanting to go to the next. And I think part of that is because 25 minutes isn't very <laughs> it's like much. like the, the opening credits, maybe. Yeah, of this three-hour <laughs> yeah. space opera. Yeah. So this is a really big one, but this is going to look awesome with our new projectors. And that's the thing that I'm really excited about this month is that some of these are 4K DCPs that have never gotten played at at the Academy and they've never gotten played through our new projectors. Right. So these sci-fi movies are going to be a great, just sort of technologic showcase of what projection can do, you know, in our cinemas. Yeah. And Nolan is obviously obsessed with the, um, all the production elements behind it, sound design, cinematography, and, um, you actually, his movies are almost unwatchable at home. Like just the sound design alone makes it unless Absolutely. you have it, you know, cranked up and have a, uh, a home theater system that would rival a cinema. People complain and, uh, and I actually get turned off by his movies because the dialogue is inaudible on their home Absolutely. You know, theater yep. or I their had home the exact TV experience. Yeah. And yeah, the whole time I'm thinking, I just want to see that 4k DCP really. Yep. Um, and I just want to remind people, you know, when I say we have a 4k DCP coming, I do not wish to uh, 
I don't wish to say that we are going to be projecting the movie in 4K. We have 2K projectors, but that 4K scan of the movie is really important to how it actually looks. And there's a difference between having a 4K scan and a 4K projector. Right. So it's still going to be projected in 2K. That's what our projectors uh, can do. That's the quality. That's how many pixels they can project. But the scan, the original material that is being projected is vastly more important than the technologic capabilities of our projectors. So it's going to be really hard to tell that it's not in 4K because that scan is going to be so good. Yeah, I can't wait to see that. All right, so that's Interstellar, and that's going to be juxtaposed against a dystopian earthbound science fiction movie from 1971. We have Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange. He'll do. Who on earth could that be? Now it was lovely music that came to my aid. A bit of the old Ludwig van. Vidy well, little brother. Vidy well. <laughs> I hope to God it'll torture you to madness. Directed, written, and produced by Stanley J. Kubrick. A Clockwork Orange is a provocative visual journey and adaptation of Anthony Burgess's seminal novel. Set in a dystopic near future, A Clockwork Orange tells the story of a young hoodlum named Alex who gets his kicks from gallivanting with his droogs, quote-unquote, performing shocking acts of ultraviolence, quote-unquote, and spouting a wide variety of futuristic British slang. But this future society has consequences in store for Alex for this aggressive lifestyle. Controversial from its release right up till this very day, Kubrick's biting social commentary and groundbreaking stylistic vision set a new bar for uncompromising and uncensored artistic expression in the annals of cinematic history. Yeah, if um, Interstellar is a space opera, this is like a ultraviolence opera, maybe with the, <laughs> between the the score or the this, the opera sound, the classical music soundtrack, and the whimsy with which the <laughs> violence is carried out is just unlike anything you've ever seen up to this point. Really, I mean, nobody would make a film in this style for various reasons right now, and and it's just kind of like i don't know it's it's it 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 challenges you because it's entertaining the way that it's um the energy in the filmmaking is in in like just the the tone of the movie is 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 light and fun and the action on the screen is is horrifying so <laughs> it's real a real contradiction so I, you know, and also another element of what I research when for these episodes is descriptions. You know, I have a good, fun time going through different descriptions, and this is one of the first movies I've come across where I was really dissatisfied with every description hmm. I ever read, and I just rewrote my own completely. Hmm. And um, that was mostly because I thought they were really spoiling the arc uh. and trajectory of this film. And I just want to say that you set it up with there's going to be some shocking, violent acts right up front in this movie, and then there's going to be some consequences for that, and it's going to be in a framework of biting social commentary. So the thing I love about these dystopian movies is that they're using the framework of a future 
time to talk about the current presence. And, you know, when, when Clockwork Orange came out, it was amid a really, really in crazy time in British history. And the reaction to it was so extreme that Stanley Kubrick pulled it from the theaters and banned it from ever being played in the UK. So it was readily available in other countries, but actually seeing it in Britain was a really underground subversive act. Um, and it circulated and got a really big cult reputation because of that. But what is so crazy about this movie, you know, it's about a gang of hoodlums in the future doing these really intense, violent acts that are still shocking today. Um, there's the famous singing in the rain scene. Um, it, 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 those are hard scenes to watch for many people right now. Um, but I think it's really important for people to try and push themselves and challenge themselves to undertake this odyssey because of what happens in the second and third acts of this of this movie. Um, so it's not just all violence all the time in this movie. Um, and I think that some of the uh, hyping up of this movie, people might see it and be like, oh, well, I've seen things that are way gorier, way sure. more disturbing on certain levels. But there really is things that are unsettling. And the way that they're framed, like you said, with the whimsy, it's it's unnerving. It, it is disturbing. Yeah, and I don't think anyone could watch this and not, you know, clearly see it through the lens of satire i mean that's that's kind of what makes it you know um somewhat palatable i mean again it's it's palatable and entertaining because he's a master filmmaker and you're just going to be like compelled to go on the journey but there's you can watch a lot of disturbing material if the point isn't like to um deify or elevate the characters it there is a a important kind of like commentary on society there and, and and it's just so heightened that i think you know the satirical tone is undeniable and every time though when i watch it um you know i think that it has this reputation and i think about how it was created and I, and i'm not sure i'm convinced that it entirely lives into this lives up to this it's the most shocking most disturbing crazy thing ever reputation and I just want people to know, you know, just like when Sorcerer was released, it was competing against Star Wars that came right, you know, right before, you know, it's it, the context in which things are released is really important to creating the reputation that comes with the movie, the baggage. And so when this movie came out, it was right after Straw Dogs. It was right after The Devils. And so everyone was just ripping their hair out um, in Britain with these crazy movies and then when Clockwork Orange came out, they were just like, no, this is just too yeah. <laughs> much. So it was kind of like the straw that broke the camel's mm. back, so to speak. And therefore, all the craziness from Straw Dogs, all the craziness from the Devils just kind of got piled onto Kubrick, who was such a great guy. You know, he's just always trying to push the edge. He's such an easy person to do that with. And he totally withdrew from it. And Anthony Burgess actually became sort of the spokesman of, you know, needing to defend violence um, constantly on TV and stuff. Stuff. But another element I just want to add, uh, talk about besides the violent and controversial nature of this movie is that we're going to be playing a 4K restoration. So the colors of this movie are spectacular. That opening shot with the red, you mm -hmm. know, getting to see that 4K DCP through our new projectors, that in itself is reason to get up out of your house and go see this with a crowd because it is really going to be an epic journey. 
it'll it'll be like having your eyelids taped open in the film just um, <laughs> projected straight into your into your eyeballs so. yeah <laughs> um and the other thing you you quickly mentioned was the score so this is something that doesn't get talked a lot about but uh wendy carlos has a wonderful experimental score at the time she was known as walter carlos um, but she, she really, you know, she did the Shining soundtrack, but this synthesizer score was one, is, is a really early one, and, and it's uh, every time I watch it, I'm struck more and more by it. Um, and if uh, adept listeners who are familiar with the score or familiar with this movie, if you can, get the complete score. It's a little bit hard to find, but it has the full version of Time Steps, which is Wendy Carlos's 13-minute synth masterpiece, um, and it's really beautiful and I highly recommend checking it out. We need, you know, the Academy Revival podcast playlist at this point, for well, sure. Well, you'll hear, I do curate play- playlists that play in the theater from okay. time to time. Yeah. Um, so if I'm working, you might hear some curated music from me just because I can't help it. And I've been doing that for years and I could keep talking to you more <laughs> about soundtracks and stuff. But let's go through our second week. Um, so week two, January 5th through the 11th, we've got a planets double feature this is the one i mentioned up front that kind of spurred the rest of the whole month here we have first forbidden planet from 1956 look at the color of that sky yeah but i'll still take blue i don't know i think a man could get used to this grow to love it wasn't i sir you can assemble a tractor i ask better check the command mic skipper hmm? command mic sir oh good idea chief sir you're in command now, Quinn. You keep right at those instruments. Aye, aye, sir. Hey, what's this dust coming? It looks like we're being met. The year is 2257. The distant star called Altair Four has three lone inhabitants. Professor Morbius, played by Walter Pigeon, a fugitive super scientist who has created a weird world of futuristic marvels. His daughter, Altera, played by Anne Francis, a bewitching innocent who has lived her whole life in the realm of splendors, and their servant, Robbie the Robot, an endearing machine who speaks 187 languages and can produce anything from hors d'oeuvres to emeralds. Commander Adams, played by Leslie Nielsen, lands a Earth space cruiser on this planetary paradise, which sparks a fantastic adventure filled with romance, humor, and suspense. All right, so this is a personal favorite one of mine, and I know that you said um, you weren't super familiar no. with this, but I again, I've sort of edited this description here to not give spoilers because all you need to know is that this is proto-Star Trek. This is about a, a, a Earth... Um, uh, Earth space cruiser, cruiser exploring deep far reaches of the galaxy and finding a weird planet and they settle down there and strange things happen. That's that's really the, the gist of it. I don't want to give too much away here because there's a lot of cool things that happen as the plot unfolds. Yeah, and um, just from seeing like poster art and kind of seeing, knowing the um, the analog style of um, special effects at this time yep. or or like you know earthship um creation kind of uh, from a from a prop standpoint i'm super excited to just almost go in blind to the visuals of the movie and just be immersed in kind of the what was possible at the time period to um 
to portray a completely alien world with what I assume are mostly, you know, practical effects. Absolutely. And so this is atomic age. Yeah. So the 1950s, the peak of it. And similar to like Bend, Bend of the River or the Far Country with the Golden Age of Westerns, we have these A features and these B features. And I think a lot of people who maybe aren't super familiar with this time period, I kind of just expect the B picture at this point. I don't know why that is, but th- whenever someone is like, I'm not sure if I like these atomic, these older, I like the 70s sci-fi, I like the 80s sci-fi, but I don't know about these 50s one. I always point them to Thing from Another World and Forbidden Planet because they really are A pictures. They, they, are, they are pushing the boundaries of what is technologically possible and they're presented and it doesn't look hokey. It looks super believable. Um, and one of the really innovative things about this movie you know right where I'm going, the synth soundtrack. <laughs> so this is the first synthesizer soundtrack that was beyond just a theremin. Interesting. Uh, yeah, and this was created by Lewis and Bebby Barron, who are famous for just being Greenwich Village beatniks that created their own synthesizer modules based off of textbooks um, and just had their the, like the like one of the very first synth studios in New York. Um, and John Cage worked with them. They're awesome. That's, just, that, that's incredible bit of history, yeah. Oh, yeah, and that's how I got turned on to this music, uh, this movie, in the um, experimental music scene in Chicago and when I was a teenager, this VHS was passed around because there's there's an ancient, I won't give too much away, but there's an ancient race of beings that lived on this planet called the Krell. And they made this cool music that, you know, they use as the synthesizer music within the movie um, and stuff. And the Krell just be kind of became this... Uh, I don't know, this cult thing wow. that everybody needed to, you know, everyone was talking about the Krell and this this sounded like Krell music or this this band or this act, you know, had some Krell in it and stuff. So it was just a really, uh, a, a cool thing, uh, Forbidden Planet and how it got circulated. Um, and it's also got Leslie Nielsen in it. So it's straight, serious Leslie Nielsen. But this is his breakout. This is going to be weird. Everyone's going to be probably expecting uh, airport, uh, sure, airplane. Know, airplane or just kind of jokey, naked gun Leslie Nielsen. Um, and this is really straight. You know, this is where Captain Kirk came from is Leslie Nielsen's character here. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like there's so many interesting ways in. It's always really fun to kind of find a side door into a movie through the music or through expectations with um an actor but yeah also just kind of like the uh, again I'm, I'm making some assumptions here but i assume this isn't like dour um bleak sci-fi this nope, is it's production code atomic yeah. sci-fi yeah. Um, and it's also loosely based on the tempest by william shakespeare um, which is another really cool entry point, it's like sci-fi Shakespeare. Um, but for people who are familiar with this movie, this DCP should look really good. So I've, you know, I've got the laser disc. I've had the VHS. I've been really unhappy with my home video experience of this movie. I haven't watched the Blu-ray, but um, it looks pretty bare bones. It doesn't look super, you know, but this DCP on the big screen, this should look really, really good through our new projectors. So this is kind of the way to see this movie. You know, we always push for the theatrical experience because we're a movie theater. Sure. But <laughs> for, for this movie in particular, you know, I've seen the 35 millimeter print too. And, 
it just it was shot on Eastman color, which is known to fade, and it's seventy years old. I'm really not sure that thirty five. You know, this is one that like needs a four K restoration really badly. All these old, super rich, colorful movies, I I really love to see the four K scans. But because they're from the fifties, they're not as well well known. Um, and they don't get as much treatment. So we do have a regular DCP of it. And, it, and it, that, to me, is pretty much the best way to watch this movie as of now. Cool. Yeah, looking forward to that one. All right, so that was Forbidden Planet, and now we're going to another planet that's the Fantastic Planet from 1973. An event and a complete success. A French masterpiece. Fantastic plan. Nothing else has ever looked or felt like director René Laloux's animated Marvel Fantastic Planet, a politically-minded and visually inventive work of science fiction. The film is set on a distant planet called Yam, where enslaved humans, Ohms, are the playthings of giant blue native inhabitants. Drags, is what they're called. After Ter, kept as a pet since infancy, uh, escapes from his gigantic child captor, he is swept up by a band of radical fellow Ohms who are resisting the drag's oppression and violence. With its eerie, coolly surreal cutout animation by Roland Tapor, brilliant psychedelic jazz score, and wondrous creatures and landscapes, this can-awarded 1973 counterculture classic is a perennially compelling statement against conformity and violence. So with this description, you know, I was really not thinking about spoilers as much because this movie is slow in an art house way and having a little bit of context to what is actually going on, I think actually helps the experience, but is not really necessary to having a rich and fulfilled experience. So this is a really just a visual odyssey that's very short. Uh, it's 72 minutes hmm. long. Yeah, so some of the, just the, the the plot description itself, giant baby, things like that. I, I could not even, I can't even really picture in my head the visual style. You, what type of animation did you say? So it's called a cutout style. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think Yellow Submarine is mm. a cutout, but it really reminds, every time I watch this movie, I really think of Yellow Submarine. Okay. Um, and it has that kind of psychedelic, you know, 60s, but this is from the early 70s style. But this is mixed with a European sensibility and also just a parable symbolism, just like a good sci-fi should. You know, it's really talking about today through an alien planet. Yeah. Um, well, these could be, I mean, with the, the shorter runtime, you could you could potentially see them back-to-back, back-to-back days. That's a really fun, you know, kind of vacation into <laughs> into multiple different worlds they look i mean it's they're they're separated by a decent amount of time and it sounds like the visual language is completely different yes um but but they pair perfectly together yeah i would say forbidden planet is very very normal seeming and <laughs> compared to 
fantastic planet, which is, you know, I think might be challenging for some people to watch. But actually, I think a lot of younger people can access this. And, I, you know, a kid, it's, it's a little more kid friendly. So uh, it has a strange charm, the pacing of this movie that is accessible in a certain way to maybe younger folks. Interesting. Yeah, it, it's um, one of my most delightful experiences with movies in general is not knowing exactly what to expect like even on a like if there's a movie coming out from a director mm-hmm. uh, i love i guess you can kind of predict what it's going to look like but i don't want to see any imagery even yeah before i go into the theater and just being transported and 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 blindsided um by the the world you're in is is such a exciting experience like you know not not like plot spoilers just like literally what (laughs) what kind of visuals am i going to be confronted with on the screen not knowing that going in it's very rare that you can have that experience but it's always really rewarding for me would it be helpful for me to give another example of cutout animation or are you enjoying that not knowing i I, if i know the example it it might make you know a difference but uh, either way um well, just for folks who maybe aren't familiar um, and would need another reference, Monty Python has a lot of this okay. cutout animation style. Terry Gilliam really popularized it. Um, and this is kind of like a whole feature movie in that style. Okay, cool. Well, yeah, I'm definitely on board for that then. Yeah, very cool. All right, so that's our first two double features. Now we're on to week three. We have a Mars double feature. And this one I'm really excited about. This is January 12th through 18th because we're now we're going back to Killer Whale Week, which was an inverse double feature. Here we have again an inverse double feature, this time all pertaining to Mars. So our first movie, we have Total Recall from 1990. And that is going to be juxtaposed against Mars Attacks from 1996. So Total Recall is about, and this is what do I mean by inverse double feature? Um, Total Recall is about a guy going to mars and mars attacks is about martians coming to us Ah, so they're very similar but very very different in just basic concept um first we have total recall from 1990. what would you do if you discovered somebody stole your mind and there was only one way to get it back Arnold Schwarzenegger. Get ready for a surprise. Total Recall. Earth, 2084. Plagued by vivid visions of colonized Mars, construction worker Douglas Quaid longs for a trip to the distant red planet. To decipher his reoccurring nightmares, Quaid purchases a cheaper alternative to the expensive journey. Virtual recollections of an imaginary vacation to Mars provided by Recall Incorporated, a company that sells implanted memories. Instead, the procedure backfires on him, and what Quaid used to perceive as reality becomes a blur. And as the bullets start flying, the answers Quaid seeks are on Mars. However, how can you tell the how can he tell the difference between reality and fantasy? Is Quaid prepared for a total recall? All right, now go. Total recall. (laughs) Seeing Arnold in this movie, um, I watched it as a kid and then revisiting it um, 
you know, in the last in the last few years. It is one of my favorite sci-fi movies. Me too. It's I'm glad just, to hear you're a fan of it. Yeah, it has a a little bit of a convoluted premise, but they they explain it all well, and then it just turns into this really mind-bending like action, you know, feature set on a you know almost like a Blade Runner type you know um, future um, urban environment. Yep. And so the the whole journey is is so incredible. But of course, what really holds up and sticks out are some of the the practical effects in in the movie and it is just um I love Verhoeven's mix of of action, sci-fi and and, and satire. So that's that's perfectly captured Arnold at the peak of his powers um but playing a much more normal um character to to some to some degree um he's still, you know, a bodybuilder, you know, muscle-bound action hero, but um he is swept up in the story. He's not like driving the action. So I have seen this pretty recently, but I haven't seen it in a theater. I, I don't think ever in my life. Well, this is going to be a nice tasty 4k DCP for yeah. you. And I I'm really excited about this one. I'm not going to rein it in here. This is yeah. one of my favorite action sci-fi movies of all time. Checks all the boxes. It's it's really a great movie for many reasons. It's based on a Philip K. Dick yep. novella. Um, but, you know, like you said, the special effects makeup, Rob Botton, you know, he is just peak right here. The, you know, I love his visual style and just watching him get go, you know, meet up with Verhoeven again after RoboCop. It's just... It's just peak for me. I, I I don't know. There's just something about this movie. It's Sharon Stone's breakout. She's just so fresh in this movie, you know, and so great. And you know, so many of these, uh, so many action movies wish they had the one-liners that this had. You know, I think about every James Bond movie. There's a kill, you know, and just Arnold just has so many good action dialogue in this movie that just it just it just worked you know they got it right in this one yeah the nothing gets me more riled up and excited than these um these like mid 80s early 90s movies like seeing the analog technology seeing the machines that they go into for total recall it's like a few it's a it's a a distant future but they still have to use like all these blocky giant computers and buttons and switches and and it's just kind of like i just love that retro futurist vision that that is kind of a necessity when you're trying when you're watching something you know um that's 30 years old it's it's gonna be um not just flat screens and and touch interfaces it's gonna be like more analog and and so i can just kind of geek out looking at the set design and and movies from this era as well yeah and and like some of the other action sci-fi movies like terminator terminator 2 aliens you know this one has a freshness to it just that philip k dick premise um and and how that plays out and I, i really tried to cut off the description on this one to not have spoilers because you really don't need to know. It's just, you know, things just spiral out of control from there. Um, from after he gets this memory implantation that, that backfires. It's very disorienting. Yeah. Without giving anything away, you are kind of, um, as confused as, as his character and, and questioning everything you're seeing throughout the movie and, and true kind of like sci-fi or, um, um, 
mind bender fashion. You like you don't know what to believe. You don't know which memories are real or implants or whatever. And, and that can also just become really trite. You know, it, I've sure. seen so many people try to do the complicated thing or just can everybody's lost and what is reality thing. And it, it, to me, this one is the best example of that. And it shows how you can do it successfully. So in some ways it's the textbook for uh, many movies to come. Uh, and it's, I, I, it might be my favorite Paul Verhoeven movie. It's right up there with Robot. I, I mean, they're just, they're so good that it's hard to pick between the two. We're, but, um, we're not always on the same page, um, at least in our pre-existing love for movies. Yeah. But RoboCop, I for some reason I just put that in more in the action camp, even though it's definitely you know dystopian, you know sci-fi future. But yeah. I see that as that's my favorite action movie, and this one is more of a sci-fi movie. So, but I, I love them both. And we also, I got to mention, we got Ronnie Cox from Deliverance in RoboCop also here again. We got Michael Ironside <laughs> here again, obviously from Free Willy and Scanners. So this is, it's, yeah, it's, it's a perfect movie in some ways for me. Um, and uh, again, if people aren't familiar with Rob Botton, you know, he did this uh, special effects makeup for Star Wars, The Fog, The Howling, The Thing, Legend, RoboCop. David Fincher seven. So, I mean, just look up his filmography and you'll be like, Oh, that style. I mean, it is, you know, he, he's, he's one of the greats out there. Um, all right. And there was many other people who were, you know, working with him. So he's not getting sole credit for sure. everything that looks, you know, the whole production design of the movie, but his, his, his signature style is all over this movie. All right. So that's total recall. We could talk about that one for forever. Um, and that's going to be juxtaposed against Mars Attacks from 1996. Mars Attacks. Jack Nicholson as the president. Yikes. Glenn Close as the first lady. Annette Bening. Pierce Brosnan. Danny DeVito. Martin Short. Sarah Jessica Parker. Michael J. Fox. Rod Steiger. Jim Brown. And Tom Jones. I want the people to know they still have two out of three branches of the government working for them, and that ain't bad. Mars Attacks. Here's the description, and I'm gonna try try to do this as as good as I can here. This this is from the original uh, VHS release. Um, here we go. Awake, Earthlings! It's later than you think. Don't miss the hilarious frenzy as Tim Burton directs and Mars attacks. See stars that shine across the galaxy. Jack Nicholson in a dual role. Glenn Close, Annette Bening, Pierce Brosnan, Danny DeVito, and a dozen more. Shriek at mean green invaders armed with insta-fry ray guns, endowed with slimy, humongous brains, and enlivened with state-of-the-art special effects. Gasp as the U.S. legislator is overwhelmed. Don't fear, we still have two of the three branches of governments working for us. Thrill as Earth fights back with an unexpected weapon. Take that, Martians. Yeah, so this one is permanently etched in my brain oh, yeah. because I watched it, you know, like it was like a a family movie rental. We watched it and like I said, it's just so weird. It was different in tone than any um 
kind of sci-fi movie that I had seen at that age. And and that tone is so nostalgic. Yeah, I just gotta exactly. Say, like, this is the zany, campy 90s. Like, this is like Nickelodeon, Slime Zone. Like, this is all of that encapsulated. And, you know, when I rewatched the segment of it, it's just, man, I miss this Tim Burton. I, this seems like the end of an era for him. You know, it's right in between um, Ed Wood and Sleepy Hollow. And mm. Sleepy Hollow oh, is just yeah. completely tonally different. So, you know, I miss this Burton and I'm really excited because this one doesn't get played much. Yeah, I, I'm actually I'm excited and nervous because I feel like maybe I, I'm curious to see how or if my taste has changed for the for this tone of satire totally because yeah I don't watch Nickelodeon <laughs> as much as as I used to or you know I'm curious I am very nostalgic for it but I wonder if this will be one of those nostalgic experiences where you know I'm ready to move on from my childhood I mean that makes me equally excited to revisit it in a theater and see it with a, a crowd response because I definitely didn't get that um experience as a kid but the the unexpected weapon which we obviously won't won't spoil like i'll never kind of forget just some of like the key moments in in this movie because of of when i saw it and how unusual it was yeah watching it i was sort of uh, am i gonna be down with this campiness this zaniness and stuff and it was a little less campy hmm. than i remembered to be and the the overpowering thing that really just took me by surprise that i totally forgot about and it's right up front in the credit sequence is the cast so let me just go through because sure. the description kind of highlights some people but doesn't really do it justice this is an insane credit sequence here we go so we got Jack Nicholson, yep. Pierce Brosnan, Danny DeVito, Martin Short, Rod Steiger, Michael J. Fox, Jack Black, Jim Brown, <laughs> Pam Greer, Natalie Portman, <laughs> Paul Winfield from Terminator, Jodon Baker, Sarah Jessica Parker, and Christina Applegate. Okay, yeah, I forgot about three or four of those. So, yeah, Jack and Black. <laughs> just cinematically, now that i am just watched so many movies, it is just really entertaining to just have all these. So the way that it's structured, I don't know if you remember, is all these different narrative threads, very 90s. So it's just kind of little stories that play out with all these different subgroups and they cross over with each other um, throughout the course of the movie. And so just getting to transfer from the Jodon Baker group to the Jim Brown group to just all these different you know, types of people um, is really fun. It's really, it's really fun to watch. Yeah. So also, I mean, I, I'll use the term disaster movie very broadly, yeah, but totally. so aliens and attack is its own subgenre of that. But yeah. the buildup and the, the immediate aftermath of some kind of impending disaster, I absolutely love that, that formula getting news, you know, um, dispatches of what's happening, learning new information about the invaders or the natural force that the, the, that we're fighting in in a disaster movie it's just like i love that but this combined with the absolute like can't be humor in uh, on display here again is a mix of things i loved that i hadn't ever seen before and it, the campy humor is also it's gothy so you know tim burton's super goth at this point you know maybe he was always been goth i don't i don't <laughs> exactly know him that well but it, it 
you know, it's it's black humor. It, it has a it has a tone to it that it's like, oh, it's this is a goth sci-fi in a weird way. That's probably also what appealed to me at, as a kid. I mean, I guess I'm like um, 12 years old, 13 or 14, maybe by the time we rented it. Not sure. Um, but it was probably a little edge. It probably felt edgy, you know, as a 13 year old, that, that style of humor. Absolutely. And the visual just nature yes. of the aliens <laughs> and stuff. Um, all right. So that's week three. Now we're going to jump right into week four for January 19th through 25th. We have a 1982 double feature. So this is one I've been wanting to do for a very long time. And as many of people know, uh, sci-fi fans, definitely, that 1982 just has this sort of cult status mm-hmm. as being the the best year for sci-fis there you know i don't want to you can look it up uh you can go through the list of all the movies that came out so right here we have the thing from 1982 juxtaposed against et also from 1982 very very different types of sci-fi movies and very very uh influential both of them uh for their time so let's I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll save my full thoughts, but yeah. I will say this period you're talking about, you can even condense it down into like from June to July of 1982. Right. Some the of these summer. movies yeah. came out on the same weekend, or not these two, but there's also um, Blade Runner, The Thing, or Blade Runner, Tron, and all of these movies are coming out at the, at the same time. Yep. And it was kind of a magical yeah. year. Here's The Thing from 1982. One hundred thousand years ago, it came to our galaxy, trapped in the wasteland of Antarctica. It could not escape. Now, it is free to become one of us. John Carpenter's The Thing, rated R. After making Escape from New York, John Carpenter teams up again with Kurt Russell to create a chilling remake of Howard Hawks' classic The Thing from Another World. Set in the winter of 1982, the 12-man research team at a remote Antarctic research station discovers an alien buried in the snow for over 100,000 years. Once unfrozen, the form-changing alien wreaks havoc, creates terror and becomes one of them. Featuring incredible special effects by Roy Arbogast, makeup by Rob Botton, and special effects by Master Albert Whitlock, The Thing is a visual experience that set a new standard for monster movies everywhere. Do you want to shout out the composer who's doing his best John Carpenter impersonation? Ennio Morricone. Yeah. So he, there, you know, I, that's so I, I promised myself that my talk <laughs> about the thing wouldn't devolve into just who wrote the soundtrack, how yeah. the soundtrack was composed. But needless to say, there's a really fascinating yep. Wikipedia and how the music came about, and you know, was maybe re- later reused in other movies. Is a whole thing amongst itself. But needless to say, we have wonderful music from Ennio Morricone with assistance from Alan Howarth and John yep. Carpenter. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I didn't want to derail us too much, but no, that yeah. the way the the baseline kicks in early in the movie is just sets the tone for this Arctic journey that we're on. I, gosh, I, I struggle so much to, you know, rank my Carpenter movies. Not that 
anyone needs to do that. This is probably the one that... Everybody needs to do that. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> I've seen Halloween the most. I watch it every year. I pretty much watch this one every year. And I th- enjoy kind of like flirt brief brief flirtations with you know christine or some of the more uh, the fog even like some of the more outlier ones that i know aren't as good but let's be real there's two kinds of john carpenter fans (laughs) kinds that like halloween is their number one and kinds that like the thing is their number one i think you and i are probably halloween yes when it comes down to it yes we are halloween so so all the thing fans know who they're talking to (laughs) but i have complete respect for all the thing number one fans out there yeah um and they can just perfectly well yeah we don't even have to talk about halloween right now it's october's october's over and we're in we're in the heart of winter there's something so um transportative and just all encompassing about the the setting of this movie and the, the feeling that that creates and the isolation and then of course just the the palpable uh, paranoia that runs through this and just creates it's like the most tense non you know like manipulative thriller like it, it's not doing the normal techniques to to make you feel like psychologically manipulated it's doing it with like setting in in just character like hanging out with the characters versus like i don't know like kind of overt things that that make you suspicious it's it's hard to describe but i love just existing with these characters for you know two hours and um yeah and then it's um (laughs) This one might be worthy of a review episode. Yeah. So, but I, I will say that the more I've watched it, the more I see Carpenter in dialogue with Alien and the original hmm. movie. And I really think people should go and watch those other two movies as they in preparation for this. But, you know, Alien really has that guys on a ship. Sure. People on a ship. Um, oh, there's mentality. only guys here. Yeah. <laughs> there's no Ripley. Yep. And uh, and so that's what we have also in the thing, which is that isolation this time in Antarctica. Um, but uh, also, this is a loving remake of The Thing from Another World, as the 50s one is called. And I love that movie so much. And it's awesome to see someone take that movie and totally transform it into something that is just just as revolutionary as that movie is when it came out. So we talked about the movie brat generation and how uh, they love um, the movies from the 50s as opposed to like the hippie anti-auteurs. So this is John Carpenter again after uh, Assault on Precinct 13 taking some nods here back to the directors that he grew up with in the 50s. You know, we have that scene in Halloween where the thing... Uh, Howard Hawks is on that he loves this movie and something that I just want to highlight throughout the programming of this of this uh, month this January sci-fi month is the discourse that many different generations have had with the 50s so previously we talked about with Mars Attacks that is kind of a spoof or reharkening back to the B pictures of the 50s and 60s a sci-fi horror you know and you know how he just made Tim Burton had just made Ed Wood this is he's in love with that time period and this is a different side of that same atomic sci-fi area um, where again just like Forbidden Planet the thing from another world is more of an a picture it's mm. not the campy b movie um and 
Carpenter is falling in love with that filmmaking and Howard Hawks in general. Um, and uh, he's bringing that love into a new transformative nature. And we can talk a little bit about the transformative nature, but clearly this movie <laughs> is just influential in many, many different ways. But visually, the special effects here just caused the, basically a stylistic revolution. Yeah, the transformative nature. I, I, I guess I should... I'll try to keep it as brief as as possible, but just how much fun they're having with the transformation <laughs> process. Absolutely. It is so like nonsensical and in the best possible way for me that that they, this like sophisticated alien creature would have to transform in such a visually like dramatic, exciting way and in just like such a a weird, horrifying way. It doesn't really makes sense to me but that makes me love it even more because they are just going for the most insane execution of these transformation scenes and with the most thoughtful and and inventive um special effects or practical special effects you'll ever ever see um pretty much i mean i this is the bar for me still today yeah and you know it happens i think every 20 years or so that there's a new visual aesthetic that comes out and it is so powerful that it radically changes cinema and um this is definitely one of them you know i think just for the rest of the 80s and the rest of the 90s things looked different you know total recall looks different it's got the same guy you yeah. know he he is dominating the big blockbusters that come out um after you know for the next 10 15 years so um we're getting a 4k dcp so when i rewatched for this one i watched it on my girlfriend's vhs and it's because i sold my vhs because i'm i'm a little tired of watching this movie on vhs to be honest <laughs> i have it as well yeah. yep and i'm just it's not good enough for me anymore and i and i and i don't mean to be snobby saying that but i just now that I've seen the DCP, that's the way I watch it. And I don't think the last time we played the thing, we saw the 4K DCP. So I'm sure the 35 looks great, but I really want to make an argument that, hey, guys, we got new projectors. And again, just like Clockwork Orange, this is a recent restoration that hasn't played that much and is a really special thing to see on a big screen. Yep. Perfect winter movie, obviously. <laughs> and that's going to be uh, juxtaposed with the other 1982 movie, E.T. from 1982. A child's joy. A mother's love. A friend's devotion. In this season of peace, share the magic with your family. Steven Spielberg's E.T. The Extraterrestrial. From Universal Pictures, rated PG. After a gentle alien becomes stranded on Earth, the being is discovered and befriended by a young boy named Elliot. Bringing the extraterrestrial into his suburban California house, Elliot introduces E.T., as the alien is dubbed, to his brother and his little sister, Gertie, played by Drew Barrymore, and the children decide to keep its existence a secret. Soon, however, E.T. falls ill, resulting in government intervention and a dire situation for both Elliot and the alien. Okay, so <laughs> this is just, we're in a post-Stranger Things world and in, in, in yeah. a post-Spielberg like Spielberg kind of just 
dominating like a certain type of childhood sci-fi nostalgic you know filmmaking for 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 decades and and so it's it may be easy not maybe not for us but i i don't know what the cutoff is for people that didn't grow up on et and and maybe kind of have seen especially in the last you know five years all the all the things that were so heavily inspired by are you trying to tell me there are people out there (laughs) that have not grown up on this movie that is a that is an intense thought for me. Yeah, I, I, there are people out there that think that Stranger Things like invented kids riding around on on bikes at oh at, at night, and that's just kind of their touch point. But it is so in debt and obviously so referential to to Spielberg. And it sounds like I have a lot of work to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, I also just think that there's people like um, my girlfriend not to call not to call her out who just didn't have a ton of nostalgia she's only a few years younger wow. than me and she just didn't have that as like a nostalgic touch point and the further we get away from from 1982 the more that's going to be the case and so many things have so many good things and so many bad things have just ripped it off well hopefully that, in the future yeah. there can just be a microchip as soon as you're born <laughs> yeah. spielberg's just a program that gets downloaded into your brain um yeah because I do definitely feel like Spielberg is just this unescapable thing that I've just had since childhood, just sort of impregnated with it. Yeah, I just think <laughs> it's, it's like an alien, yeah, <laughs> festering in my stomach. <laughs> I think it's it is inescapable, but some people might have been almost more, you know, um, exposed to it oh, by God. all his um, yeah. yeah, all his references. So I mean, and and it's just a great opportunity to go back, obviously, to the source and. Um, watch this movie kind of in conversation with these other sci-fi movies. This one is like, um, got it's like kids on an adventure too. I mean, like yep. kids, the the sense of 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 wonder could not be a more polar opposite tone to the thing. So I think that's a, a really fun pairing and i i don't know i just thought about spoilers with this movie how it's really hard to spoil it but i thought maybe a warning might be appropriate which is if you have not seen et in a long time watching it again will bring up feelings (laughs) you're going to have some heartstrings pulled during this movie um maybe not quite bambi level but pretty you know this is i just watched you know the first 15 minutes and it was just it was intense i hadn't seen it in a while and just a lot of thoughts you know totally um all the like one off iconic things that people that people know from the movie yeah are still there but it's 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 easy to forget kind of the interesting you know dynamic and relationship between the brother and and the sister i have a, have a sister a younger sister and yeah. we grew up on this this movie it absolutely just captures the feeling yeah. this is nostalgia in in the most like um effective delivery <laughs> mechanism that that you can get for for people my age at least and it's a stylistic revolution in just the same way as the thing. Sure. So when I think of Spielberg, I think of this specific type of style. And unfortunately, that just kind of dates me. Because if you were born before uh, the early 90s, I was born in 91. You know, if you were born earlier, if you were born in the 60s, you saw Jaws. You know, you saw these earlier movies that formed. You know, Spielberg wasn't always like that. He kind of came into fruition in that in the big blockbuster cozy Spielberg way 
with this movie. You know, like it's just a simple story and the the kids feel so authentic in in their reaction. The it kind of establishes some tropes of like parents not needing to be the driving force in the movie, like just being able to lose yourself in this adventure kind of and and this connection obviously between um Elliot in et is is exactly what you're you're talking about will will bring up the feelings for sure for sure another thing that about it when i was was growing up is just it scared me you know et is kind of scary looking and i hear a lot of people say that um you know they don't want to show their kids this when they're really young because et is a little freaky looking and i wanted to look in when i was doing research into who made et and it's this guy carlo rimbaldi um who i wasn't very familiar with but Check out this filmography. Sure. Got Mario Bava with A Bay of Blood, Lucio Fulci, Woman in a Lizard Skin, Dario Argento, Deep Red, Andy Warhol's Frankenstein, King Kong from 1976, and its sequel, The King Kong Lives, Alien, Possession, 1981, Nightwing from 1979, one of my favorites, and then Dune from 1984. Oh, well, damn! You got so close. I was hoping you would say Eraserhead, so we could just put this mystery <laughs> to to bed of what wow. the the baby in Eraserhead was. But it is they're all in the xenomorph kind of family tree. Um, that is that is incredible. Obviously, the Italian masters of horror represented there, and then some American masters uh, as well. Um, and mostly to to you know articulate your point, like. Those are those are pretty scary um, uh, movies in in tone, and so for absolutely. him to apply that to what is absolutely, I mean, you know, a kids movie. Um, the point is that ET is supposed to be scary. It would scare you know any kid or adult, and yep. they would you know alienate the creature versus you know show empathy towards it. So, and they were intentionally making. I was reading about they were intentionally making it scary because they wanted more fear in the movie because kids movies weren't like they are today back yeah. then this re this is re-revolutionized kids movies you know they were just scared like spielberg why do you want to go into this we want to make jaws these are the things that really bring people out the terror um and so they tried to make it a little bit edgier i think than they would today sure i mean my favorite kids movie and adult movie and christmas movie being gremlins yeah <laughs> certainly certainly leans in to that that tone of totally. you know like creature design and everything else but yeah this is this is all i feel like this movie gets played in the summer and this is a great kind of opportunity to see it like i said in conjunction like put it in a little bit of a new context especially if you like watch it in the same week as the thing <laughs> absolutely Okay, so that's E.T. Now let's move on to week five, January 26th through February 1st. We have a Space versus Earth double feature. And what we mean by that is we have a space-bound movie and an Earth-bound sci-fi movie. Uh, First up, we got Galaxy Quest from 1999. Never give up, never surrender. From out-of-work actors... By the sons of Warvan, I shall avenge you. ...to outer space heroes... You will save us! Ah! We are actors, not astronauts. DreamWorks Pictures invites you to bravely go... Hi, little guy. Ah! Where no comedy has gone before. Woo! 
Tim Allen, Sigourney Weaver, Galaxy Quest, rated PG. For four years, the courageous crew of the NSCA Protector, Commander Peter Quincy Taggart, played by Tim Allen, uh, Lieutenant Tawny Madison, played by Sigourney Weaver, and Dr. Lazarus, played by Alan Rickman, set off on a thrilling and dangerous mission in space, and then their series was canceled. Now, 20 years later, aliens under attack have mistaken the Galaxy Quest television transmissions for historical documents and beam up the crew of the has-been actors to save the universe. With no script, no director, and no clue, the actors must turn in the performance of their lives. Yeah, this one actually, now that I think about it, um, I, it came out three years after Mars Attacks, but this is another movie that was like a family rental. Um, a little bit, I was a little bit older, but I remember also just thinking this was such a weird execution of a <laughs> of a sci-fi premise, like a, a kind of the meta um, details that you're describing there, a show within a movie within a show type stuff. Um, was maybe something I hadn't been as familiar with uh, at the time. And obviously I had a pretty strong relationship with Tim Allen because of home improvement and, um, (laughs) you know, growing up on, on TV shows like that. So I, I distinctly remember this, but I have not revisited it probably, you know, in this century. (laughs) Yeah. There's nobody better to play, uh, has been William Shatner and Tim Allen. <laughs> yeah. And, you and know, that he, casting has aged well in the sense that he has only kind of like become more has been, unfortunately. Absolutely. <laughs> this movie has aged really well. Sigourney Weaver, always awesome. Yep. But this movie just doesn't get played like ever. And, um, you know, it's a movie that everybody knows and is familiar with, or at least people in our generation are definitely familiar with, um, and has a great cult following. So I'm excited for people to get to finally see, who love this movie, get to finally see it. And these comedies are just so great with a crowd on the big screen. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, not long after I moved into the neighborhood, they sort of did like an outdoor um, community viewing of it in oh, the Montevilla nice. Square. Yeah, yeah. But it was, you know, it was still light out. It's one of those things where it's a really cool experience, but it doesn't quite capture the focused theatrical, you know, environment. If you if you have any commentary on the the um, uh, the print of it, I'm sure you know their laptop projector projector wasn't. Cap- anyway, it was a really cool community thing. Yeah, and I could get a glimpse of kind of like the the appetite for seeing totally. it with other people but it'll be much better to see it kind of in you know in a theater yeah and my original intention with the um whole uh, programming sequence of the month was to bookend the first week and the last week with a space bound and an earth bound contrasting double and we kind of talked about it and we thought it was a little confusing to have them both be the same theme and stuff but this you know just like interstellar and clockwork orange right now we have galaxy quest juxtaposed against thx 1138 which is going to be the deep cut pick for uh, January. And that's another, just like Clockwork Orange, it's another uh, dystopian movie that came out in the same year, 1971. So here's the description for THX 1138. All Earth Council, in its infinite wisdom, has decided these two numbers are to be disposed of. The Biochemical Forum has demands to make on their parts, however, before they are eliminated. 
That's the kind of efficiency that makes you proud to live in this era. Like all other worker drones in the sprawling subterranean technocracy, he has no name, just a designation, THX 1138. He's the end result of a number-crunching, soul-numbing, perfection-obsessed society, but there's a fatal flaw. He is human. A chilling exploration of the future, THX 1138 is also a compelling examination of the present and the directorial debut of soon-to-be Star Wars creator George Lucas, starring Robert Duvall as THX 1138, who makes a harrowing attempt to escape from a world where thoughts are controlled, freedom is an impossibility, and love is the ultimate crime. Quote, the real excitement of THX 1138 is not really the message, but the medium, the use of film not to tell a story so much as to convey an experience. Stunning, dazzling, and terribly powerful. That's from Charles Champlin, the Los Angeles Times. I am I am so curious about this because I've always sort of kind of not ignored it, but like I know more of the name the name recognition all comes from like the what did Lucas go on to like patent the sound technology, the THX kind of like sound design? He he named it after this movie yeah. when he pioneered it at Lucasfilm, the THX sound. Yeah. Yeah. So I w- I've always been like, oh, it's fascinating that there's a movie that predates right. this thing that I see in theaters, you know, all over and over throughout my, you know, movie going life. Right. And I've just, for some, for whatever reason, like the, hearing that description, I had n- no clue what the actual movie was about. I just kind of like, am inundated with the with the name the name brand and then and yeah have just overlooked going back to the source so that is very intriguing just just hearing that much yeah for my personal taste this this checks every box that there is um it is a a really experimental abstract um powerful parable so it, you know, it's it's using symbolism, it's using experimental uh, concepts in the story, and also, like you said, it's it's about the medium. Just visually, aesthetically, this to me is is pretty much the pinnacle of sci-fi. Um, you know, I can't think of a movie visually that I I really resonate with more. You know, it's got all these white spaces, all this mechanical stuff. You know, and it's done in this really uh, lo-fi punk way. He doesn't have a million dollars. He and have fancy special effects makeup guys these so he, what is he doing he's shaving everybody's heads he's creating visual images in the most rudimentary way and that's what lucas can do so you know we talked a little bit about um who passed on star wars david lynch yep. when we had our was it blue velvet but you know a lot of people passed on Star Wars. You know, uh, William, uh, William Friedkin passed on Star Wars. The script was bare bones. Nobody could see the visual potential in that script that that George Lucas made, and that's art. Right. And that's the same thing with THX 1138. So Francis Ford Coppola just found this crazy kid who was really good at mechanics, George Lucas, had this really awesome student experimental film, and he was like, let's let's do it. Let's make you, you know, we're in this crazy time period. Easy, It was 1970 where Easy Riser, Rider had just come out and done a splash. The studios were trusting someone like Francis Ford Coppola to help them 
pitch stuff to this new generation. They didn't know what they wanted. So they're sure, let's try THX 1138. Maybe they'll like that. So it was this rare opportunity for somebody to get to do a pure artistic vision. Um, but unfortunately, the studio it was too much for the studio execs. So we're going to be playing the director's cut version hmm. that Lucas made in 2004. And this is a very George Lucas move, which is yep. <laughs> he's pouring his money that he's made back into these movies and, and implanting a lot of what look now pretty dated CGI. So I think the director's cut is more true to his vision. Um, but I'm not sold at it being the only definitive way to see it. Um, because the, the the extra CGI stuff does look very 2004. Interesting. Okay, so I was going to say that this might be one of the best examples ever of like the constraints of a lower budget, of technology at the time, of, you know, kind of just like the inherent limitations, uh, bringing out the best in his creativity, like then challenge, you know, like, like the examples you gave versus the infinite budget he would have for the star wars prequels let's let's say and it's just yep. kind of like I, I can't imagine like being the type of of you know regardless of how you feel about that but being the type of craftsman like um cameron or lucas but also having wanting to push technology forward and having an unlimited like palette to work with versus a very limited one. I can kind of wrap my head yeah. around the type of artist that can make the most out of, out of a small amount of resources, but having infinite resources and then, and making something like avatar or, or, you know, a CGI heavy film. I, I get why that's hugely impressive, but I, I also just can't even really like understand how that breeds creativity. It's just like too much. You, I, I, I think some constraints are useful. I think that's very well put. And he's got the constraints here and it really influences his creativity here. So he's reworking the scripts based on what locations we can use. And I, I can go, I can talk on and on about this movie and why I think it's so important for people to see it. Um, but I played it before and it was really, really moving. I played it like five or six years ago. Um, and, uh, it was one of the movies when I first started at the Academy, I was really pushing for, um, and, um, I'm really excited for a new generation post pandemic to get to watch this movie. And I think that if anybody's ever felt like a cog in a wheel, they should watch THX 1138, um, because it, it really is a, is a visual experience. Cool. Um, I mean, what what a month! It's it's crazy when the stars align and you have five weeks to, <laughs> to well program. Put, well put. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I'm sure it was uh, a lot of fun for you to like pair pair these up. I love I love that they're all kind of like double features and they they balance each other out. I'm so excited to see um, all of these movies, but you know, we'll see um, what which ones we decide to talk about in the future. Absolutely. Yeah. This was a really fun month to program. Um, this might be one of our best sci-fi Januaries ever. You know, it just, it's, it's great to see how all the pairings came out. Is that an ongoing tradition? Sci-fi January? You know, I've been pushing for it more. It was sort of an unspoken rule back in the day. And I, I, as I've kind of come to making more decisions, I've been like, nope, you know, every January I want to play at least, you know, at one every week. And this, it was really successful the last couple of years. So now we're going full board and doing 
all sci-fi the entire month. Cool. I'm, I have to um, thank you because um, I was in a little bit of like a mental um, slump because I was sad that um, regardless of like the quality of Christmas movies, it's such like an yeah. a easy way to like fill my own personal little programming missions all of December. And of course, we're in the wake of October, you know, one of the best kind of the most exciting um, movie going times of the year. And I don't have any personal like January, you know, recurring viewing habits. So I'm glad that there's um, <laughs> the, the, the Academy is stepping up to kind of give me a new a new mission for for January because I was uh, a little bit aimless. <laughs> well, we're more than happy to do that. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's it for um, our January preview episode. You can subscribe to the podcast by searching Academy Revival Podcast on Spotify or Apple. Thank you, Doorman. That's it. Thank you, Drew. And thank everybody else for listening.